Welcome to Inspirational Leadership. My name is Kristen Harcourt. I'm your host. I'm an executive coach and professional speaker. I created this show because I'm on a mission to humanize the workplace and transform leaders. And so I speak with guests globally who are also passionate about this mission. We talk about different topics around how can we both from a leader as a self-leadership perspective, improve ourselves, grow, and then how can we support the people around us? And we have a wonderful guest today who's already got me laughing before we've even started the podcast. And I'm super excited to introduce you to Liz Kislik. Liz is a management consultant, executive coach, TEDx speaker, and contribute to Harvard. She contributes to Harvard Business Review and Forbes. Her specialty is developing high-performing leaders and workforces for organizations. Welcome to the show, Liz. Glad to be with you, Kristen. So Liz, um, I would love to just right from the beginning, give our listeners an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. Talk to me a little bit around your journey. What's got you into the work that you're doing right now? So from the journey perspective, and that's an interesting way to think about it. um, I think I started off as an eldest, which gave me two interesting vantage points. One is that I was always responsible. I was expected to be responsible. I had to be responsible. I was held responsible. And the other is that I knew more than my siblings because I was older. And so I was used to having plenty to say. (laughs) about how things worked, about how things should be done, etc. And with that kind of start, and of course, the influences in my home, my parents, and I, even as a young person, were active volunteers, uh, chaired committees and extracurricular activities, all that kind of stuff. And um, my first job out of college, and after college, I didn't go to grad school right away. Most of my friends went to grad school, but I wanted to work because I felt like work was where you could make things happen. And I was really interested. I mean, I loved school. I love learning. I also like action and I like seeing results. So the workplace was good for me in that regard. And maybe I got too much action, By the time I was 23, I was managing a 300-person call center. And I would be careful (laughs) these days about putting such a young person in charge of such a large operation. Now, I had been there for a few years, and I had started out in that operation. I knew it well. Um, But it was probably the hardest job I've ever had because you could never make it all good. That many people, that much production going on, um, there are always things going wrong. And that was very frustrating to me. And when I left that agency, I had many industry relationships and was subcontracting to other consultants right away. And since that time, that's what I've done. I mean, I stopped subcontracting, but um, it's been actually 
It's 33 years this month that I've had my own practice. And that has evolved from uh, what I would call consulting in telemarketing, both B2B and B2C, to customer service, to contact center management in all its forms, to just advising organizations on what's working and what's not working and how they can get things to be better. Because when you are dealing with customers, you learn about everything that happens in an organization because at some point it affects a customer. And when I would be on assignment, if senior executives were willing to hear more than just about the productivity of the folks in the call center, then I could talk to them about the way they were thinking about customers and the way they were organizing their entire organization and the way, all kinds of things and leadership and strategy. And it turned out that that was productive for them, exciting for me. And so that's really what I've been doing and just trying to keep an eye all the time on what changes with people and their expectations, what changes in the structures that hold organizational life together and what doesn't change and therefore what you have to accommodate to, but also what you have to shake up. Mm. Wow. Fascinating. I mean, I just think of myself as that 23 year old just graduating from university. And I, that's a, that's a big role to have with a lot of responsibility. And at the same time, it's one of those you sink or swim, right? So when you really get thrown in, I'm sure so much growth came from, from that opportunity at at such a, a young age. And so I, I love that, that diversity of experience that you have, Liz. And, and so from that perspective, would you agree, would you hold the perspective that when employees are really happy and they're being treated well, that they're going to for sure treat your customers better because they're within an organization where they're feeling engaged? I would say conceptually, yes. Practically, though, it's just as important that they actually have the right skills. Right. And that they be trained in how to do it well, because there's a kind of bottom line, I think, for customers. Yes, they want to talk to a nice person and they want somebody who understands them, but they really want their order or their resolution or their service, whatever it is, they want it delivered accurately. And if they're talking to a lovely, nice, sweet, engaging person I'm sure you've had this experience. I've had this experience. You can hear them wanting to help you and not actually knowing what to do. Oh, that makes you crazy. You just want to get off the phone if you're on the phone and talk to somebody who knows what they're doing. So yes, you can get better performance out of somebody who's engaged, who enjoys the work, who loves the company. But part of what makes for engagement is competence. Mm. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good distinction because it's I've seen this actually quite often in organizations for different positions where they have the right attitude, but in terms of the skill set to do well in the role, they don't have it. And guess what? Not only is it that they don't have it and they're not going to be as successful in it, but they're actually not enjoying it as much because they're not using their gifts and talents, right? So for certain roles where, so I I like where you're where you're going just with customer service. So let's just talk through that one because I think you know that's one that you know really really well and you worked along for a long time with organizations supporting them in that way in getting the right people. Um, Where do you notice that organizations sometimes get it wrong in terms of they're putting somebody in customer service thinking these qualities are really going to serve them, but actually there's a big gap. This is what will actually serve them better. So before we go there, I just want to go to one other place that strikes me from your question. This is not just something that happens on the front line. It is quite shocking how many senior executives are hired theoretically for their experience. And then it turns out they don't know the guts of that. You know, they may have supervised it, but don't actually know how to do it. Or they never learn what is really the business of the new organization they're in. And they may have many talents and acumen, et cetera, but um, a metaphor I'm fond of is a drill can make a perfect hole, but if you're pointing it in the wrong direction, you can get a very lovely hole somewhere you didn't want one. So no one should think that, that this problem of competence is limited to frontline or, um, you know, first start workers. This happens all the way up the chain. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. With that. Absolutely. Yeah. Proviso. Yes. Um, so do you want to look at what are the skills that somebody needs on the phone? Well, we don't have to get into a lot of detail, but it's more around where there might be, where people might be surprised, right? So some of these roles, they think they need more of this, but it's actually, they need more of that. So, um, so I'm going to give you an example, which showed up for me as you were talking about that. I've seen this very often in sales. So someone is an amazing individual contributor, phenomenal at sales, loves it, independent, out there doing their thing. And then the organization assumes, well, you're a star performer. We for sure want to put you into management. You're going to be amazing at this. And then they get in it and they're miserable because they're not getting all of that, that high and that interaction and winning the deal and all the stuff. They're now managing other people doing it. Right. So I'm curious around if there's something that just um, shows up in this moment where um, there, there's kind of a belief that you need X, Y, Z, because some might think, oh, with customer service, it's all about being friendly and being helpful. And you alluded uh- to this. So same thing is true for engineers. I actually had a conversation texting with my nephew yesterday, who's a software engineer, and he's not so interested in any kind of management because he loves resolving the problems that he can get his hands around, being responsible for his own work. Those are things that are no longer available to you often when you're in management. And let's look at that from two different aspects. One is that when you are responsible for others, 
you often have no chance to do the work that used to float your boat. You were talking before about engagement. One of the problems about being responsible for 300 people, et cetera, et cetera, is you're always dealing with their problems more than you're dealing with the customer's problems. And the skills to do that have sometimes not so much overlap with the skills for making customers happy. Because although in both cases, you really need to be able to listen well, you need empathy and compassion, but if you are managing, you need to understand how to work the organization. The organization becomes your systems and tools. Whereas for the salesperson, might be their knowledge base, might be their product demonstration, you know, they have other tools to rely on. But anybody who is responsible for other managers, they have to know how to work the rules. They have to know how to work the structure of the organization and people who are their peers and more senior because you need to be able to advocate for your people. Somebody who can't advocate for their people, they have a hard time managing and engaging their staffs. And it's very different advocating for an individual customer than it is advocating for staff. And part of that is because you don't know how weird the individual customer is. You know they're entitled to something different or their product should be customized in some special way or they catch your fancy and you wanna do it. But you know all the things that annoy you about your people and you still have the obligation to advocate for them and have their jobs and their responsibilities and their support system all work together. And that's really tough. It's very hard to know just how awful this particular person can be and still carry their brief using your political capital. That is a very strenuous human activity. Mm. I really like where you went there, Liz, because I think that's actually a place where a lot of leaders actually struggle is that ability to advocate and build influence and be able to work with the different people in the organization. And so I'm sure there's lots of different things you could recommend for people getting stronger in that area. Um, but what jumps out at you if you're, you know, a leader's listening right now and they notice that they struggle with that, they struggle with building influence. So the building influence thing is really tough. There are some people who naturally seek influence. They often, not always, any of these things, by the way, generalizations, they're mostly right. They can be right, but the opposite is also true somewhere, and that may be what you're dealing with. So, so don't be fooled by the generalization and think you should shut out other possibilities. See what your lived experience is and have some trust in that. So one of the things is, and this is particularly true in the United States, 
extroverts often have more influence because they look more excited or engaged on the surface because they're sharing ideas right away. I worked with a very senior executive a few years ago. She actually had trouble hiring or respecting introverts Mm. or people who were visibly introverted is really what I should say. People who did not jump up in a meeting with a hot idea Maybe they submitted a more workable idea in an email after the meeting, but that was not exciting to her. Mm -hmm. And so she passed over a lot of those people. So the thing is to take a leaf out of the book of people who have influence, observe what they do and observe it with the different people you might wish to have influence with as well, because all of those I'm going to use a kind of objectifying word and call them targets. All of those targets, they're different too. And you have to engage people in the way that works for them. So there's no question, you know, all those saws, old saws about people hire someone who's like them or who they like. And if Oh, I don't know if the the recruiter played tennis in college and the candidate played tennis in college, all of a sudden, there seems to be more of a connection that has nothing to do with the job, but there seems, it feels like we're together in something. Look for those things. Where are the places that you can be together with the people you want to have influence on? And they're all different. Yes. And then there are all the regular things about showing up and keeping your commitments, et cetera. But it's a not, it is not enough in today's world just to do that. You need to do it and also make a point of showing that you've done it. Because other people may be noisy about what they've accomplished. Mm-hmm. And if you are only quiet, and wait to be recognized, it could be a long time before you are because the noise will precede you. So you have to be really thoughtful about it. Good work alone is not enough and that's a shame, but you do need the good work. Yeah, I I see this one come up so often, even more. I mean, there's been a lot of research to show that women do this even more often where they just think, well, my work speaks for itself. I don't want to be out there talking about what I'm doing. It feels like I'm bragging. It feels like, no, but if people, if you're not out there talking about it, they don't know what's going on. So it's getting more comfortable. And like you said, with the introvert and extrovert, doing it in a way that feels right for you. And I think we also need to help organizations understand that we don't need just extroverts and that we need to be much more conscious around the introverts and how they can contribute and their way of contributing might look different. I love that example that you gave. And I have several introverted clients that say the same thing. I have the ideas, but in that moment, I'm still processing it. So I need a little bit of time to process it and share it afterwards share that with the meeting afterwards. And ultimately they do have the better idea, but it's that person who's loudest. That's, that's the one that's getting, that's getting the airtime. That's often the case. And if you work that from both angles, if you say to the leader, talking just about extroverts and introverts 
seems too simplistic and and yeah. reductive so that's not always effective yeah. but saying to the leader oh i've noticed that jane always speaks quickly but julie thinks before she speaks so in your next meeting, think about giving her a little more time to do her thinking because her content's been very good. That way you draw the contrast and both things can take their proper place in the leader's mind. And for the introvert herself, you can coach her to actually speak up and say, oh, that's such an interesting question. I'm gonna think about it a little more. And then I'll be back to you with, and either you can lay something out right then, or you may even need sometimes to make a joke at your own expense and say, you know, one of my day after the meeting memos. Yeah, yeah where I lay it all out. So yeah. look forward to that, people, because yeah. once I work through this, there'll be good stuff to follow. Yes. Yeah. It's embracing it. I like where yeah. you just, it's embracing it. It's not a bad thing. It's just a different way of processing. Um, I like one of the things, Liz, that you talk about is that um, conflicts, there's conflict in the workplace is not going anywhere. And there can be a lot of product <laughs> productive things that happen with conflict. Where do you think sometimes we get conflict wrong? Some of the stories around conflict in the workplace. So we get it wrong when we think that it is always coming from fury and anger and upset because a conflict is just a difference of opinion, but we often don't call it conflict unless we see that there is heat behind it and almost a kind of Violence sounds too strong, but that there's going to be some kind of wounding or loss because of it. If you and your friend negotiate about which movie to go to, and you both get to see movies you like, maybe not today, but you both get to see movies you like, there's no loss. So you may not think of it as a conflict, but if you thought about it as if you were fighting over which movie to see, you would call it a conflict. So we label it conflict sort of after the fact or something we fear. It's important not to fear differences of opinion and therefore not to fear conflict because if everybody has the same thoughts, you're not moving anywhere. You're just in one place doing the thing you already know how to do. It is out of the differences that you both have new ideas and strengthen your approach to old ones. So in that sense, conflict is really valuable. It's also so interesting and useful for leaders to observe conflict, to see what employees care about and how they conduct themselves. Because somebody who self-manages well in conflict, that's somebody you can count on in a whole variety of situations. Whereas somebody who either, and this is, I wanna be careful to say, this is not about extroversion and introversion. Mm -hmm. Somebody who blows up in a meeting or somebody who goes stone cold silent, mm -hmm. those are both harsh 
and potentially dangerous ways of dealing with conflict. So knowing people's conflict styles is often very important in deciding who has the potential to be elevated. Yeah, I think that points so much to what I, what I do a lot of work with clients around too, is the emotional intelligence, right? And when we go to fight or flight or uh, freeze or <laughs> faints, right? Because at the right. moment, the amygdala is going on and all this going on. So what does it look like to take some deep breaths and get grounded so that you're responding instead of reacting? Um, to, to even expand on that a little bit more, where I notice conflict will also show up is where individuals are working just one-on-one within a workplace with people who also, not even just conflict, they operate a little bit differently than they do. And that can cause a lot of stress. Um, what, what are some of the recommendations you have when an individual is working with somebody who might operate a little bit differently than they do? Good. So one of my rules is the person is not the problem. The problem is the problem because it's unbelievable. We all do this. If we don't like the way somebody spoke to us, we don't like what they said. We think about them. We think about them, that person. People say things like, I have a problem with that person. Okay. That, that seems like a very entrenched judgment already. What does that person need? Who are they representing? How much of this is stylistic? And how much of it is, it is that it's truly their responsibility to be advocating for, might be a certain result, might be a particular way of working. I mean, this is why there are classic historical conflicts between, say, sales and operations, because they need to do different jobs. Um, And they're rewarded, frankly, for very different kinds of outcomes that sometimes tread on each other's toes. So there are often structures and organizational rules in place that almost require a person to have the viewpoint they have and blaming them for it as if they created it out of nothing is kind of unfair. The other thing is you don't know how bad they've had it before. You know, what were the terrible things that the person who had your job before you said and did? Well, they may just think that everybody in your role acts that way and they may come into it feeling they have to defend themselves. There are so many different things that can be happening. Why not just say, oh, I noticed that we seem to be having a hard time with this. Let's step back for a second and figure out what's really going on. And pause. I mean, take a drink of water. Just going back to your point, breathe a little. Because as soon as somebody is in one of those, let's call them the four F's. Yeah. Um, so a person who's coming at you, you can't deal with them anyway. So you've got to find out what's going on and ask questions a lot. A person who is frozen, whether it is out of fear or out of anger, and they are different, they look different and they respond differently, but you might not notice right away because both may give you the great stone face. Um, A person who's frozen, it's important to ask them, 
what's going on for them and what do they need, etc. Um, okay, so what did we, so freeze, fight, flight? There are the people who just avoid. They may not show up for the meeting. They talk about something else. You know, there are there are people who will take three quarters of the meeting with something that's not the real topic, that sort of thing. Again, being curious and asking questions about what they need, what they're trying to accomplish. Your curiosity alone will help them feel recognized. And then what you called faint, Kristen, I often think of as fold. Yeah. It's like a collapse. Yeah. And there's no point going further then. When someone is actually in collapse and you can tell, they can't do any better until they feel stronger. So preserve their dignity as well as you can and then offer them an olive branch, a bridge, I don't care what the metaphor is, anything that will help them think I'm not in danger and I can work with you. Yeah. So there are questions there are body postures, there are offers of support, so many ways in. But the first thing is to say, oh, I see we're having trouble. I Right? It's so simple. I love where you did, like when we're talking it through right now, and I know what happens because in that moment, there's it's heightened emotions, right? There's so much going on, which is why, again, we need to like take it down a notch so that then you get into a place where you can have these questions because yeah, just naming it, right. Just naming it and then giving. And then the other thing I heard with everything you were saying, Liz, is there was so much empathy and compassion underneath it, right? Like, let's not make assumptions here. Let's ask questions. Let's just get really curious. And so now all of a sudden it disarms the other person so that now you're having some good dialogue here. And I think sometimes what happens is people just they shy away from having the real conversation that needs to take place. Because they're afraid they're going to lose. Yes. They're afraid that if I say, what do you need? Then I have to commit to giving it to you. Right. That's actually not true. <laughs> but I need to know. I need to know what you need. And even the way you like to have it. Because then that informs my negotiation, if that's what it's going to be, my decision making about what's important, my recognition about maybe we need other people in this conversation, maybe it shouldn't just be the two of us. There may be other people who structurally have impact, and we can't resolve on our own. So understanding has nothing to do with giving in. You could think of it, um, I feel I learned so many of these lessons from being a parent. Yeah. As a parent, it's really helpful not to assume your kid is doing something you think is wrong or weak or silly for the reasons you assume they're doing it. It's really useful to find out why they're behaving that way by asking them simple and straightforward questions. Because if you practice on, you know, a second grader, you have to be really straightforward about it. Yeah. Some of the nuance goes away, but with great kindness. But then you may still tell them it's their bedtime where they can't have the toy. What is true is true, but the way you do it is different if you understand them and you feel understood. 
rather than if you're coming at them as some kind of battering ram, as if they themselves are not acceptable. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I I always say that there's so many parallels between raising kids and raising uh, employees, but ultimately everyone wants to feel seen and heard. So if all of a sudden that person feels seen and heard just as a child, we, we all know this where a lot of times where they're looking for negative attention, it was just because they wanted to be seen. So they were trying to like, Hey, I'm trying to get your attention. They just were going about it the wrong way. Um, so I think that's so important. What you're saying there is just again, pausing and, and letting that person feel seen and heard um, is, is really, really important. It's so true. And I really like um, letter motifs, I guess. They're coming up for me today. So you said seen and heard. And I also think of safe. Yes. Yes. Not under attack. Yeah. My budget may have to give, but I'm not under attack. I can come back tomorrow and still feel all right. I don't have to be in dread. Um, I don't have to look for some way to counter attack. I can actually be vulnerable because I'm confident that we will be working together on the same goals and purposes, the larger goals and purposes of our organization. And that while we're doing that, We actually care about preserving each other's dignity and coming up with the best solution for the group, not necessarily for either of us. Because work is different from personal. Mm -hmm. There's the work purpose. And it just makes a huge difference to address that instead of why, as Vice President A, can't I get the thing I need because I, as Vice President B, don't want you to have it. Well, that's ridiculous. What's going to be good for customers? What's good for shareholders? What's good for our corporate reputation? You know, let's look at all the stakeholders and how is what we are deciding going to serve them? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To me, that feels like sometimes, which can be difficult, is getting out of ego and getting more into impact. And what's the impact we want to make here ultimately for the organization? Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. And I have to say that that's the kind of thing that in many ways, if it is not in good shape at the top, it's hard to carry that through the organization, just like, and this was one of the things I learned very young, it's hard to be happier than your boss. Right. It's hard. There are many things that it's hard to do if your boss doesn't do them or doesn't approve of them or doesn't understand them. It's hard for you to be safe doing, having, being them. So, There are ways in which the behaviors and the nature of the senior leadership do roll down and color the rest of the organization. That doesn't mean that you can't do the right thing for your group. You just have to be aware that you are swimming upstream and it may be more tiring from time to time, but it doesn't mean it's impossible. You have to weigh how heavy is that burden and how much can you yourself lift up yes 
Yes. That's that. Uh, yeah. I've seen that in organizations where different pockets and within that leadership team are having really high functioning teams and doing great work. Right. Um, but some things at the top are not, it can, it can be difficult to get buy-in for some of the things that they're doing, where there's times that they have the freedom to go and do it. They're doing it and a very well-oiled machine working phenomenally together. So I like what you said there. It's, it's, uh, if we could have more leaders at the top understanding this, and, and that's part of my point with this podcast is to have more of the CEOs and senior leadership team really understanding what this looks like and, and how we humanize work. And that actually brings me to my next question, Liz. I mean, when you think about um, humanizing work, and from my perspective, that's about creating inclusive workplaces where they're really working together for that common goal, common mission and purpose, and, and people feel engaged, people feel excited to go to work like they belong. Um, and it's like what you said earlier, they feel seen, they feel heard, they feel safe. From your perspective, if I gave you a magic wand and you could go out there and start to create and say, these are the shifts that I want to see in workplaces, what are those shifts that you would like to see? Oh, my goodness. Nobody has ever asked me anything like that before. Okay. So the first thing that comes to mind is actually about attention and paying attention. And that's at every level. Curiosity is a form of attention. I would like all the attention to come from a positive route, um, both in terms of the bids for it. Hey, look over here, see this wonderful thing. And in terms of the slant with which it is paid, looking for the good. Because it's unbelievable. I'm sure in your work, you've seen this as well as I do. When you go and you interview work groups and lots of people, they have ideas. They want things to go well. The leaders often don't know that. So I would like positive attention. That would be one of the very, very first things. The second thing I would like is a kind of mix between competence, skill, and a kind of externally focused business acumen. And the reason I say that is it's too easy to get wrapped up in the cocoon of your own job. And you've got to be good at your job in the first place. And, and I mean that in uh, skills and intelligence about your area kind of way, role appropriate, functional. But if you don't understand the environment you're in, you can make totally wrong decisions and end up in unbelievable, unnecessary conflicts. So acumen about what's going on in your organization and caring to know and about what's going on in your industry and in the world, because somebody may have already figured out how to make that wheel that you are carefully chipping stone every day, and somebody's already gotten to the polishing stage. Well, please, let's get some information from them. So that would be a second kind of thing. And then the third thing, which really goes back to the first thing, 
is a kind of rigorous compassion, caring deeply about what's going on for others and being able to make judgments and to communicate in ways that express what's really true, even if that doesn't make everybody happy. Mm. Wow, I, I, I'm so on board with everything you've said there. I actually um, did a talk a, a couple of years back talking about even on the HR side and with the CHROs, how it's so important to, you know, understand everything you're doing in your role, but you need to also understand what's going on in the business and what's going on in the industry, because to be in a strategic HR or strategic people and culture leader, you need to have that understanding when you're doing what you're doing within the organization and all of the other things. I love where you went with the um, attention and, and compassion. And, you know, what comes up for me in this moment, Liz, as you br- brought that one up is, you know, being very aware of what's gone on for, I mean, almost a year now, nine or 10 months where we're in a global pandemic. And so when you think about that piece, um, when it comes to attention, but then also like the compassion, I really like where you were with the compassion there. Um, what can leaders be doing in this time, you know, understanding some people might be working remotely, um, they might be coming in or not coming in and have all sorts of other things that are going on with their mental health outside of work that are impacting how they show up uh, at work. What do you think leaders should be doing? Okay, that's a very big question. And it makes me want to add something to my magic wand wish. Because the other thing that we need is the ability to look ahead. So it's, it's not just the looking outside your job for what's happening now, but what are the logical conclusions, the ramifications of the actions I take today? Um, in society today, I think we have way too many short-term decisions. And if we looked out further, if we had been able to look out further, if we had done the work to look out further, there are countries today that are suffering less from the pandemic, for example, than we are here in the States. And, okay, so how could leaders think about this? One is just to sit and think from time to time. What might be happening that I don't see on the surface? I find it can be very useful as an exercise to actually ask a leader to make up a backstory for the situation that's in front of them. Mm-hmm. And I nudge them to make up multiple versions. It's, it's like Rashomon or one of those movies where if you look from a different vantage point, you actually get a completely different story. Because when leaders assume they know, they make judgments and then communicate in ways that act on those assumptions and they could be just wrong. So things that will be important as people continue to work remotely, understanding because you ask, how they can work best remotely. And the thing about this, Kristen, it's so funny. You never have to get stuck in what your old decision was. You can always start over again. 
yes, we've been home for nine months. I mean, I'm lucky to be in my office, but lots of people have been home for nine months. So ask them, it's been nine months now. Let's talk about how well this is going and what would be better. You could do that at nine months and 10 months and 15 months and it never matters. You can always check in and say, what would be better now? What's working that you wanna keep? And what would be better now? I don't know if we can give you everything or accommodate everything, but it helps to know because maybe we can. And that kind of overt checking in and demonstrated openness to hearing the real answers, both parts, and then let your employees tell you because in most cases, they actually know what would be better for them, even recognizing that it might not work. One of the things that's important to say to employees is don't self-censor. I really want to hear the thing, even if we both know we can't get there, because then we can look at how can we narrow the gap. But if you don't tell me, I can't even get part of the way there. Yeah. I think that's crucial. Yeah. Second thing that's crucial is making sure that people are talking to each other in helpful ways. My nephew, the software engineer, as part of the conversation, brought up the idea that his work is actually much calmer now. And he likes not having to see people because everybody just does the thing they're supposed to do. Yeah. Well, that's great if your work can be done independently. But if your work is collaborative work, really collaborative work, and you're not in constant contact, I don't mean always, and I don't mean round the clock, I mean ongoing, consistent contact with your colleagues, something's getting dropped or lost and you don't know what it is. And you may not figure out what it is three months later when you hit up on that problem that was caused by the lack of contact earlier. So making sure that there are ongoing discussions and it's possible that in the remote environment, whether you're working by phone or by video, it's not enough by the way, to only work by Slack or email or text or any kind of no voice, no visual way. You've got to do that. Not every day, but you have to do it. But you may really need facilitators now in ways that you didn't when someone else could just hop up and say, could I have the marker and then go write their thing on the board? You may need a good facilitator. Could be somebody on your staff. Doesn't have to be an outsider yeah. for crucial discussions. Yeah. So knowing what's really going on making sure the discussions are happening and that they're happening well is very important. And then you raise the mental health issue. People have responded to these circumstances in all kinds of ways. I know people who are much more productive than they ever were and people who are drowning, can't get anything done. Yeah. Um, and everything in between. Yeah. And asking people how they're doing and recognizing that they have responsibilities 
for the people they live with, whether they're family or not. I mean, some people never meant to be working with their roommates, yeah. have all kinds of weird home, home situations. Yeah. There are responsibilities for those people. There are responsibilities for family. You can't even know everything that's on somebody's plate. You don't know who they've lost unless you have a relationship in which they're willing to tell you. It's worth having, um, you know, what many nonprofit organizations call good and welfare, where people actually bring to the table what is new that's wonderful, what is new that's hard and bad, and have that kind of humanity of support so that people want to stay in. There's real risk, particularly in terms of women now, that they cannot handle their work because they're dealing with kids at home and end up opting out in ways that are bad for your organization. How are you going to fill that spot with somebody who had that person's talents and background? Um, Certainly bad for the individual. Bad for the family, not just financially, but in terms of how we feel about each other and very bad for society. So that's a very bad norm. So there are many, many things that leaders have to be aware of now. And I want to say that leaders can't handle all of this every day. I just, you know, made six more assignments and that's tough. And so leaders need their peers to have these kinds of discussions with and often need whether it's outsiders like you and I are, um, or other work groups, masterminds, organizations, you know, could be trade organizations, where they can talk with colleagues and peers from outside the organization to get support. Now is a time when if people ever needed support, this is the time to experiment with getting it. Mm. Thank you for really taking the time to give some really concrete examples of ways. Cause I think some people just get lost. Where do I even start? Right. So I think you gave so many wonderful questions. And I even like the first one where you recognize that as you're sharing it with them saying, just let me know, I won't, might, might not be able to do all of it, but we could figure out a way to be able to support you somewhat in that, right. Even positioning it like that. Um, just really opens up the dialogue. And and I've been talking a lot about what you just ended with. So thank you for ending there that the leaders themselves need that place for self-care where they can be talking through everything that they're going through, um, get ideas from one another and just have that supportive community where they have that safety to just talk through and, and just just share everything that they're experiencing because it is difficult for all, for everyone. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What's that old expression? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. Yeah. It's a little different from it's lonely at the top. Um, If leaders aren't feeling stressed by their responsibilities now, they may not be thinking of all of them. Yeah. Because you you do have to do the outreach to your team. They look to you. They count on you. But you can't carry that burden 24 hours a day, and you have to be able to take care of yourself in self-care and health and all those things, and your own families and responsibilities, and that's why you need others to turn to. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, Liz, I knew this would be the case. I, I We could just keep on talking. I have so many different areas I wanted to go with you still, but um, being conscious of it, we're at the stage we're going to wrap up today's conversation. And I always like to leave um, our audience, give you an opportunity to leave your final thoughts. Okay. Here's my sort of bottom line. While you're alive, there's always something you can do. You don't have to give up. You may feel terrible. That's legit. Don't try to stuff that down or close it off. You do feel terrible. Know that you feel terrible. And know that you're still here and you can still take action for yourself and for others. And the best way then to start is by being curious about what's going on. And you can do that with yourself too. Mm. Yes. So important. Liz, thank you so much for being here today. It's been such an enjoyable conversation for me, Kristen. Thank you. Um, Where can people, we're going to have show notes for sure, but where can people learn more about you, Liz? Best place is my website. That's www.lizkislik.com. K-I-S-L-I-K is how you spell that part. Um, And There, in fact, Kristen, if people want, there's a free ebook that they can get about the interpersonal aspects of conflict and years and years of blogs and articles um, about many of the subjects we've talked about and almost everything that happens in organizations. And they can, of course, also find me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Yeah, I've checked out Liz's blog and so many wonderful articles. So I really recommend going out, going to Liz's blog and subscribing so that you don't miss um, because you do that weekly, don't you? There's a weekly blog and there's also a monthly, it's a compilation of blogs. And that comes with a sort of opening message that that actually doesn't get published anywhere else. Good, good. So everyone check that out. Um, I'm wishing everyone no matter where you are in the world, it might be morning, it might be night, it might be afternoon, have a wonderful day. And please create space to take good care of you because there's a lot going on right now. And hopefully 2021 will look a little bit different putting that energy out into the world.